Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Today we're going to be talking about rising tensions between Israel and Iran that have actually really ramped up in just the last couple hours. Um, the prospect for a broader scale war in the Middle East, I know, shocking, and what militarization of space would look like and what it would entail. All of that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. Okay, so this week, President Biden has held a virtual summit with the leaders of Japan, India, and Australia. Uh, they have collectively have been dubbed the Quad, and they likely talked about China, and they talked about a number of cooperation on other things. Well, they talked about cooperation on a number of other things. There we go. Uh, and probably the elephant in the room, which is China. And ahead of this meeting, China made a statement where it said that such summits shouldn't target third parties. So they they knew what the quad, that this, that this collection of countries, America, Japan, India, and Australia, were almost guaranteed to talk about them, them being China. So there's that. And while we see this new administration bring America into the picture, uh, where it was leaving the picture, of the broader scale showdown between India and China, uh, which the Indians were reaching out for other powers in recognition of, you know, their relative weakness to China. Not that India is weak, but rather they're just not as strong as China. They do have good long-term uh, advantages, demographically speaking, but um, they've been reaching out to other countries to kind of help balance the, well, the balance of power, and they did that. They do have that 10-year military pact with Japan. Australia's in a trade war with China right now, so Australia's de facto on their side, and now you have America. Uh, we'll see how long this lasts, but... <laughs> But it's something for now. It's important for the short term, and we'll have to see how it plays out in the long term. But very interesting developments in the East Asia, technically South Asia for India, but we're going to call it East Asia and Oceania for Japan and Australia. We could just say Pacific technically because the Americans are here, but we'll just say East Asia. Uh, speaking of America, they have continued... Well, I should say we have, but, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't like our foreign policy. Well, we have continued a push for sanctions on Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that is meant to deliver Russian natural gas straight from Russia to Germany via a pipeline that's supposed to be laid uh, along the Baltic Sea bed. So, like, the floor of the Baltic Sea, the pipeline's supposed to be laid across. And it's going to deliver natural gas from Russia to Germany. The Russians have sailed a pipe-laying vessel 
uh, all the way over from their Pacific coast. So that's quite the voyage he has undertaken to get to the Baltic Sea. But hey, at least the Suez is there. So the journey is shorter than having to go around Africa like they used to have to back, back way back in the day. And I'm pretty sure Russia didn't even have a navy that far back in the day, but we're not even going to get into that. So they went through all of this to get Nord Stream 2 passed. The Germans themselves have been surprisingly resilient and, well, persistent in their desire for Nord Stream 2. Um, much to the dismay of America's foreign policy chiefs, which I am not a part of. We, we already know what my foreign policy would be. Uh, we already know it would also be superior, but um, we're not we're not gonna talk about it. <laughs> but um, yeah, the America, in light of that, has continued its push for sanctions on Nord Stream two, which this time around have they've threatened, uh, more overtly that Germany two would be included in that instead of just being a purely anti-Russian tool, they've included Germany. In the you know, open, you know condemnation of the pipeline rather than condemning Russia and then you screw Germany you know in the fine print which I'm sure they would have done but um there's that uh, America has also reached the 100 million vaccinations mark which due to the Johnson and Johnson's vaccine is likely to be more accurate well it's likely to more accurately reflect the number of people who've actually been uh, vaccinated rather than being double what the real figures are, because before, all the other shots that are not Johnson & Johnson, those are two-shot vaccines where you have to get it, come back like a month later, or some time period afterwards, and then you get the second shot. There was even an instance where someone uh, <laughs> faked being a different person so they could get their second shot faster. You got... <laughs> You gotta love people's responses to uh, crises, you know, when when they're not the government, you know, the government response to crisis is always a calamity, unless you're Sweden or South Dakota, in which case the government response is to pretend that there is no crisis, and somehow do better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the world is being vaccinated, so we can probably expect... I wouldn't say a return to normal, you know, because really, truthfully, we could return to normal tomorrow if we really wanted it to, but um, governments don't seem intent on doing that. They seem more intent on introducing vaccine tra <laughs> vaccine papers that you have to show before you can, you know, get transportation to other areas, even within your own country. Uh, so that's not normal. Um so I guess it's part in line with the broader push around the world for border security, but I think it's a bit much. Uh, especially given the very wide applications of such a tool, namely for authoritarianism. But we'll have to see how this all plays out and how who actually does go along with it and who doesn't. Because I'd imagine the people that don't uh, will either get backlash from their citizenry or could prosper because of the lack of restrictions. We talked about how Greece was opening, was openly stating that they are open to British tourists in spite of the EU, 
pushing an anti-British stance with regards to immigration and even just travel. So there's that. Lots of problems for the EU we talked about before. We're going to try to take a break from the EU. Every seems like every week I dedicate a segment to talking about just how bad it keeps getting for them. I'm, but um we're going we're going to put the EU down. All right, we're going we're going to put the drug down and we're going to talk about the rest of the world and I was thinking about getting to Nigeria. I think I might dedicate a segment in the next episode to some African and maybe even South American nations. Well, we'll have to see if we can scrape scrape together something. But we have a Africa brought in a broader sense later this episode. I'll be talking about with regards to a rise in militancy that is most evident, I believe, in Africa, uh, which is largely ignored, though. But I believe it could have impacts beyond the continent, so I'll be talking about it later this episode. And maybe we'll talk about a specific country on the continent in future episodes. I do like moving around the planet, because it's always, as I have found in these couple weeks that I've been doing this podcast, it's always the little things that pop up and take you by storm. Or take the world by storm. Like two countries in the Caucasus that suddenly start fighting again. And you make your first episode on them. Hmm, I wonder what those two countries could be. But nevertheless... Oh, speaking of South America, actually. The former Bolivian president, Janine Añez. Janine Añez, there we go. Uh, she is accused... The returning president, Evo Morales, who was previously ousted, um, she has accused him of political persecution. This comes in light of officials of her administration being arrested uh, to be tried on counts of terrorism and sedition for causing a violent riot that was attributed uh, to Morales' previous resignation. Now, she... Janine has said that the police are trying to arrest her. Um, this in spite of... Apparently, there were police guarding her house that were not trying to arrest her. We'll have to see how it plays out because, you know, not all police are the same. Not all of them are given the same orders. Maybe they're just... Maybe their headquarters is just debating whether or not to actually go through with the arrest. But we'll have to see how that goes and how things play out there. Although, I'll admit, South America is very, very insulated on the geopolitical stage due to where it is and how far removed it is from everyone else. Africa would kind of be in a similar situation if it wasn't right next to Europe and the Middle East at the same time. You know, so there's that. But, uh, there's, that's South America. Well, that's Bolivia, anyway. Uh, corruption. Yeah, polit political drama something uh that we here in the north are getting a bit used to now so we'll again we'll just have to see how this all plays out uh but moving back over to the the old world russia has promised to retaliate if america moves intermediate range missiles into the asia pacific region uh, and, and this comes after the Pentagon sent a request to Congress to surround China with missile bases as a part of what is being dubbed by the pro-Cold War between U.S. and China community. Um, 
a community I greatly, greatly, greatly disagree with on a number of issues, but they have decided that containment, a new containment policy, would be best to fit this new challenge against China. And I guess this is kind of like their, what, their first draft of surrounding China with missile bases. Because uh, you can't really, you can't really, like, take away their economic partners, at least not right now. So you surround them with missiles instead. I'd imagine that'll go very well. Definitely won't lead to a Cuban missile crisis when the Chinese do the same in return. Uh, speaking of Cuba, they're still communist these days, right? Yeah. I wonder what would happen if the Chinese put missile bases in Cuba. I wonder how we would respond to that. That's sarcastic because we all know we would freak out and have a panic attack and probably threaten nuclear war if the Chinese didn't remove the missiles. It'd be just like the old Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, except, you know, it'd be China instead of the Soviets. That being said, um, while we're still on the topic of China, and we're going we're gonna to move away from our currently um, dumbfounding and dumbing down <laughs> foreign policy, to a 25,000-page report an independent report that was well filed by 50 legal experts on human rights and war crimes that says in the art in this report that China has violated every single article of the 1948 Convention on Genocide and to that i have to say wow just wow because it's not exactly hard to believe, you know. <laughs> it's really not. And I guess, what is this? The at, at this point, this Convention on Genocide for China is... This Convention on Genocide to China is, what, the Treaty of Versailles to G Germany circa the 1930s? They've violated every single article of it. This is the UN article on, on the UN Convention on Genocide. That's what it is. So we'll be specific there. Uh, not hard to believe in the slightest, uh, especially when the Chinese have to put out propaganda videos showing the, the all the happy faces of the Uyghurs who are currently detained in their detention concentration. What? What? Who said that? What? Uh, their their re-education facilities in northwest China that only house Uyghurs. <clears throat> yeah, that's what we call genocide, folks. That's genocide, folks. But hey, at least the Uyghurs have the Tibetans there, right? Yeah. Oh my god, China's a mess. <laughs> this is... Okay, okay. This is actually legit serious. But truth be told, I don't really know what people expect to go down. I mean, it's nice to have confirmation for what a decent number of people have already known for a couple, at least half a decade now. But what will be done about it? And what should be done about it? And that's the different question. I don't know what you're going to do about it. I'm the isolationist in the room. I say we disassociate with them. 
with the Chinese. And one of my observations of history, which is kind of one of the darker observations, was that um, World War II was not fought for the Jews. It was fought because other people got invaded by Germany. And Germany certainly didn't fight the war for the Jews, I'll tell you that much. They, they, that was a side benefit for them. A really, really messed up benefit that they got to exterminate more people. But no one joined the war for the Jewish. And that's an interesting observation that I have made. As a matter of fact, most of the world denied that the Holocaust even existed until the Soviet and American troops started marching into the concentration camps. And even then, it took the Americans walking in themselves to believe what the Soviets had told them. Because the Soviets came across them first, because the Germans put a bunch of them in Poland. So, how do you stop this? And I guess, really, the only answer I have is probably the Uyghurs will just have to rise up on their own. Because... Who else is coming for them? Even if other people wanted to, what are they going to do? They're landlocked, and they have China for hundreds of miles every, every direction, except for, what, Kazakhstan and Russia? Russia's not going to come. I'm sure the Russians wouldn't mind doing something similar to the Chechens if they were given the opportunity, or if the Chechens decided to rebel again, and you... See the Russians test out their new military weapons and maybe a few million Chechens disappear. Who knows? Uh, oh, well, we do know that the Russians aren't going to be the ones to end this. Kazakhstan doesn't have the power to end this. Well, as a matter of fact, none of Central Asia does. The countries that theoretically would have the power would have to fight through all of China just to get to the camps. It's not like, it's not like where you had Germany... In Europe, which is relatively small compared to the powers that it was fighting, United States and Russia, and you got them crushed on both sides, though you would have to come in through one side. Well, either you go through India and you go through the Himalayas, or you come by sea and you're met with a wall of men. I don't really don't see how we would even be able to get to the Uyghurs without a total destruction of the Chinese government, which I don't think would happen in anything short of World War Three, So there's the caveat. You could try to end the genocide, but you have to cause World War Three to do it. The countries that have signed trade deals with China aren't going to not trade with China. They're economically dependent on it. So the trade aspect is effectively removed to where enough to where military would be the only plausible option but again, you'd be fighting World War Three, And if the Chinese... and How do I put it? The way in which you would have to do that entails fully, completely defeating the Chinese government. Which, if the Chinese were actually pushed that far, they would just empty the clip on the... New, they would hit the red button all 250 times to launch all 250 of those nukes. And you'd have the end of the world, supposedly. No, not supposedly. You'd have an end of the world. Definitely for the people that got hit, be the end of the world. I don't know how you'd deal with that. 
definitely a question the internationalist community is going to have to answer. My answer is disassociate with these people and stop funding genocide through trade. That's my solution, and America is uniquely privileged to be able to do that because of our size and the depth of our own economy. Other people probably can't afford to do that, so I can't reasonably expect them to do. It's a terrible situation, and eh, it's one of those things where we're going to have to sit and really watch how this goes, too, even if we don't want to. But uh, on a more positive note, though, scientists have found a second person, a woman in Argentina, who has a natural immunity to the adverse effects of HIV. And this is bringing the world just one step closer to a cure. So there's the there's the semi-balancing out of the bad news and the good news. Uh, so that's actually pretty decent. There's like, what, 39, 38 million people who have the virus uh, worldwide. So pretty good. Very, very good. Uh, Mexico has begun ramping up immigration raids as record numbers of people are trying to reach the U.S. border. They're moving through Mexico to do so. And under the Trump administration, Trump worked with Mexico to curb immigration because Mexico actually doesn't like it when people walk through their country illegally to get to the United States illegally. So effectively what Trump did was he gave them the green light to police their own border. And we're going to see raids. We're probably going to see lots of raids because there's lots and lots of people. The And there's not too much that America is probably going to do about that. Um, namely because the detention facilities at the border are overflowing right now. Uh, either that or they'll do something and make the problem worse. We'll have to see how that plays out. A whole lot needs to be played out. We're kind of early on some of these. Well, early enough. I'm not going to say we're early. But an another story here. We have 27 Nigerian soldiers and 10 militiamen. Uh, that's 27 soldiers plus 10 militiamen. So not me breaking the number down. Uh, they have been killed over a four-day period, which started from Wednesday and onward. They were killed by Islamist attacks, which have been claimed by the Islamic State of West Africa province. Now, they claim the ISWAP, uh, that's the acronym for them, they have claimed higher kills, but we'll go with these numbers here, because, you know, people like to toot their own horn, and we, we see what ISIS does where something will happen, and they'll take responsibility, but they weren't actually involved. Don't know if we could trust this branch of ISIS, so we'll go with the government numbers of, you know, Nigeria. So there's that, and that plays into what I'll talk about later on, which is a rise in militancy. Uh, and last but not least, we have Iran gets hit with a magnitude 5 earthquake along its southern regions. Uh, we'll see what the collateral damage on that is, if anything important gets hit. Maybe not. I imagine they would take precautions, but you never know. But, um, yeah, that is it for the rapid fire news. And when we come back, we'll get into the meat. All right. And we're back. And now we're going to talk about Israel versus Iran, which is going to lead into the second segment of the meat, which is a, the prospect of a broader war 
in the Middle East. So, in recent days, an Iranian cargo ship was hit with explosives. Uh, no one on board was injured, luckily. Uh, normally when there's explosions and things go boom, people die or get hurt. But luckily no one was injured by this. Although Israel is suspected, and I should say highly suspected, to be behind the attack. And I'll also say that Israel is both highly suspected by everyone to be behind this attack on the Iranian container ship, which was in the eastern Mediterranean at the time of the attack. Now, Israel neither confirms nor denies its role in this attack. So, allow me to translate that to English. You see, that is geopolitics for we did it, but we don't feel like saying it right now. <laughs> geopolitics can be a very petty game sometimes, but that's what makes it more interesting. Now... This comes after an Israeli ship was subject to an attack in the Gulf of Oman, which is just outside the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which itself is like the gateway between the Persian Gulf and, well, the Gulf of Oman, which leads into the wider Indian Ocean. So, the, an Israeli ship was attacked in the Gulf of Oman a few weeks earlier. Now, that attack was blamed on Iran uh, by the Israelis by the Israelis, but then Iran obviously denied their involvement in that attack. But in light of these rising tensions, Israel has unveiled their new Iron Sting mortars weapon system, uh, and that is said by their defense ministry to use GPS and laser guidance for pinpoint accuracy. Uh, so it's a mortar, so it kind of shoots up before the the munition comes down and explodes. And so the reason for this is uh, the Israelis are attempting to reduce the collateral damage when they fight in urban environments. Uh, urban environments like, say, uh, a Palestinian town or city that the Israelis are demolishing bit by bit to force people out. Mm. I wonder what this could be used for. Hmm. <laughs> Definitely not that. But, uh... <laughs> Iran, on the other hand, their Revolutionary Guard, so the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, which most likely in response to Israel unveiling this Iron Sting mortar, uh, they have unveiled, uh, well, they have showed off their own weapons. Uh, now, the naval unit of the IRG showcased a large stockpile of missiles, which presumably is underground, and has been dubbed Missile City. Now, we don't know where this is, which is good for the Iranians, otherwise they'd, they'd get bombed. <laughs> or two Israelis on a motorcycle would pull up and shoot someone <laughs> in the head. I can't believe they actually did that back a couple, what was it, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. I did a segment on it for the, <laughs> I did a segment on it when it happened, but um, I can't remember which exact episode that was, I just remember it was back in like the fall of 2020, <clears throat> but um, very interesting story that was. So we have Iran 
showing off its massive stockpile of missiles, and Israel showing off a new mortar weapon that can be used in urban environments, or at the very least can be used with greater accuracy. So they effectively have a short-range artillery piece, <clears throat> which um, I'd imagine in the open desert is going to be super effective against anything that moves. So what we have here is rising tensions between two countries that already hate each other and are religiously opposed to one another. And, um, what, are backed by two rival entities. Iran is backed by Russia, and Israel is backed by United States, who uh, Russia and the United States are themselves rivals. So you have like a force multiplier on multiple levels between their disdain for one another. And with these rising tensions, which have, you know, accelerated to the point where they're showing off weapons systems to one another, um, that is going to lead me to ask the question as we segue into this next topic. Will there be a war between the two? And I, I said before that we were going to talk about broader war in the Middle East itself. But I think this is a good title because these two would cause that broader war. Now, I cannot say it is unlikely that there will be war between the two. Because um, one, it's the Middle East. Two, the region is already barely stable as it is. And three, all it takes is for one of them to go too far with the posturing that they're both already doing. They're showing off weapons, weapons, and more weapons. Someone eventually might actually use those weapons in a way that the other guy finds intolerable and you get an actual shooting war, even if it's undeclared, because that's how, that's how things operate in the Middle East. You don't, you don't declare war. <laughs> You just show up and shoot the other guy, and then you disappear. And that being said, uh, Israel and Iran are technically already at war, if that's where the definition we're going off of. You can't just go assassinating people and then pretend you're not at war. So, technically, we could say that the two are already at war. It's a covert war that Iran is really uh, losing, so... In overt war, however, the Iranians would stand a better chance. We'll have to see how this all shakes out. I will say, I will say though, that it's un, it's improbable that they'll have a war. Not unlikely, but improbable. The chances that they don't have a war are ever so slightly greater than the chances that they do. But those chances that they do are pretty high right now. The situation could change, even just by the time I make this recording on Monday, because uh, a lot has happened over just the last couple hours that led me to include this in the podcast. Um, so the situation can change, and it is changing rapidly, just not in a good way rapidly. So we'll, we will have to see how that goes. Um, but yeah, they're posturing, they're showing off their weapons, and someone might use them. That being said, there are two whole countries separating these two from each other. Iraq 
Now, even though Iraq has become friendlier towards Iran in the past, over the past decade, Iran, well, Iraq, would still have very strong opinions about a massive Iranian army moving through their territory. And the second country between the two is Syria. Now, I'm sure that Syria would also have very strong opinions about a massive Iranian army moving through their territory. But the thing about Syria is they, they don't really get much of a, um, a say in who can and can't enter their country these days. So it'd be more of a diplomatic protest that goes ignored and unheard. Yes. So we'll, we'll just say that in advance for the Syrians because if they say it themselves, they'll be ignored. <laughs> Poor Syria, stuck in the civil war. It's propagated by other countries interfering in your internal affairs. <coughs> Excuse me. But that is just one of the reasons I advocate isolationism. You don't get these ridiculous adventures into other people's countries that ruin people's lives there. And at the expense of taxpayers here, especially. But I'll digress on my isolationist sentiments that get stronger by the day. Well, actually, while I'm on the topic of American foreign policy, technically, the U.S. under Biden would likely get involved uh, if for no reason other than the fact that they moved troops into Syria. Uh, what was it? Day one that Biden was inaugurated. <clears throat> they moved troops into Syria. So troops are already there in the Middle East. They're in Iraq, I believe. Despite the Iraqis protesting, asking us to leave, you know, nicely. Uh, but every time something goes slightly wrong, the American foreign policy leadership decides, you know what, maybe we should stay for another uh, year. But, um, so that with the American presence effectively stuck like a rock and it caught between tectonic plates, you know, not moving at all here. This conflict, if it were to happen, would, I could very easily say, thanks to just the U.S. presence alone, it would spiral out of control very quickly. Because it's not just America, Israel, and Iran. Well, I, really, it's not just Israel and Iran. The Americans are there. But it's not just the Americans either. Because, obviously, we would have Syria and Iraq get drawn in. Well, there would obviously be Iraq because, you know, Iran would have to move through Iraqi territory just to get to Israel. This conflict would spread out of control very quickly because the other people in the room would not appreciate an expansionist Iran. And we would see Israel's unofficial anti-Iran allies, which are Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which I'll refer to as the UAE, and those two would step in if this were to happen. Now, albeit they would do it quietly when no one is looking because they don't like being associated with Israel, but they are. They've The UAE is normalized relations, technically. For the purpose of saving face at home, they'll do it quietly and pretend that it was their own initiative and not them coming to the aid of Israel. The the non-Sunni Muslim heathen in the room, 
Well, the non-Muslim heathen in the room. Everyone else is Muslim. <laughs> so they would probably do it very quietly and when no one was looking. Syria would get drawn in almost by default due to the U.S. and Israeli presence in their country. They're in a bit of a civil war right now, in case you haven't heard. Um, but on top of all that, Russia would probably respond in some way, shape, or form. Likely, most likely, due to um, their current situation, where they're kind of digesting the caucuses right now, and they're really gearing up for some sort of potential conflict in Ukraine. I was watching the Duran today. Well, actually, no, it was Alexander Mercure, who is like the chief editor of the Duran, and he's on the Duran at the YouTube channel with his, with Alexander. You, you should watch it, you should watch it. The Duran, it's on YouTube, very great. Uh, great for geopolitics, that's what they do. And where I get a decent bit of my insights for some of these episodes. Well, some of the topics in the episodes, I have to gather up the information myself. But Hugh was talking about a buildup of the Russian army, specifically along the south, in the south, along the Ukrainian border. And they have effectively, since the war in the Ukraine began, materialized out of what was previously nothing. It was undefended border between them and the Ukraine. And now they have a massive presence on the Ukrainian border. Maybe they're preparing for something. Who knows? But it's important to recognize that their troops are currently elsewhere. And the troops that they have in the region are kind of preoccupied right now. So their army is preoccupied. And I, which leads me to believe that Russia would probably respond uh, indirectly rather than directly. More often than not, they would probably do some direct action uh, to avoid you know, doing something to actual American troops, and I'm sure the Americans would do the same. They would, <laughs> those two would be playing footsies with each other while everyone else gets crushed underneath. And the Russians would probably give massive sale, they would, they would, let me come back, let me come back. The Russians would probably respond through massive arms sales to the Syrian government under al-Assad and Iran, whom they are both friendly towards Russia and Russia friendly towards them. And I would add to that, they would also do arms sales towards any militant group in the region who is consistently hostile towards the U.S.-Israeli coalition. So that automatically includes Hezbollah, that automatically includes the Palestinians, <laughs> the, and any other group they can find and get their hands on, probably somebody in, Le in involved in the Lebanese civil war, which we won't even talk about until it's done, when we can, you know, maybe get a good view of what entire nation is going on there. But we have this belt of destabilization ranging from the what the western regions of Iraq straight across, straight west, to the coastline of Lebanon, who is in a civil war along with Syria. We would see the Russians again backing anybody in the region who would shoot at, who was willing to shoot at, either the U.S., Israel, or the Peninsula Shield members, uh, Arabia, the UAE, and anyone else who decides to step in 
against Iran and Syria by default. Oil prices, as a result of this, would skyrocket probably in days, alright? Or at the very least, over the course of a couple months, because no one's oil would be safe. No one's oil, except for the two countries that aren't actually in the Middle East. Those two countries being Russia and America. And wouldn't you know that those two are, they just so happen to both be net exporters of oil. So, and that really changed my perspective towards the end of putting this together. Not that what I've laid out before wouldn't happen in the event of a war. Well, maybe it wouldn't. We speculate here, and that's one of the situations I've laid out. But in the event that this happened, and it did expand into a broader war, which I myself believe it would, just due to the anti-Iranian sentiments of, what, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and anyone else who joins in on their side, it would expand into a broader regional conflict, similar to um, the fight against ISIS and how it expanded from just being a Iraqi and Syrian problem to being an everyone problem, this conflict between these two would also expand. Just, And again, it would just be from them having to fight their way through other people to get to one another. I'm sure those other people wouldn't appreciate being fought through. <laughs> and I'm sure their neighbors wouldn't appreciate watching them get fought through either. Especially by Iran. It's important to recognize the distinct, what, how should I say, oh, hostility between Sunni Muslims and the Shia Muslims in this region, Iran being predominantly Shia, and Arabia, the UAE, and effectively everyone else except for maybe Syria and maybe Iraq, not entirely too sure on those two, but everyone else being predominantly Sunni Muslim which would include Turkey, who would, of course, be a wild card in all of this. But um, I believe if this were to happen, it would expand into a broader war across the Middle East. It would send oil prices skyrocketing as they, they, the Israelis would probably target Iranian oil, the Saudis would target Iranian oil, and then the Iranians would throw Hail Marys where they would just empty the clip of all those missiles that they have in Missile City, towards uh, maybe a really, really, really large oil processing facility in Arabia that's situated very comfortably along the Gulf Coast. The Gulf of Persia, that is. Um, And maybe take millions upon millions of barrels of crude per day offline in the blink of an eye. And you would see, of course, oil prices skyrocket. Except for um, Russian and America, who are, their oil production regions are so far away from this region that there would be nothing any of these players, other than Russia and America themselves, who could actually target Russian and American crude production. The Russians are the only ones in this who have the ability to hit American energy production, and the Americans vice versa, but they're not going to fight a direct war against one another. They've never done that. And they probably won't 
either. That's my bet. And again, that being said, regardless of how this massive, horrific, humanitarian crisis of a shootout would end, the Americans and the Russians would not only be able to walk away from it and pretend that it never happened, they would make off like bandits. Like bandits. Because the oil market would effectively be cornered between the two in the aftermath of this war. Especially after the production facilities of the Saudis, the Iranians, and the Syrians, and the Iraqis, and the Emiratis, that's the UAE, after all their production facilities were either in part or completely destroyed beyond usability. Well, where are you going to get your oil from? There's Russia and America, but there's not nearly enough to go around for everyone who needs oil. Arabia produces ridiculous amounts of oil. Iraq crude, gone. Syrian crude, gone. Arabian crude, heavily damaged. UAE? Gone. Where are you going to get your oil from? Norway? Venezuela? Oh, that's not an option. (laughs) There's not enough oil to go around. Oil prices would skyrocket. The Americans or the Russians would see their bank account shoot up. The Americans might actually get out of debt for once. <laughs> That's... They would they would just walk away and pretend it never happened. They might actually see eye to eye for once in, what, a century? It would be horrific for everyone except for these two. Like... I can't stress enough how unfair the advantages America and Russia would have in the event of a broader scale war caused by Iran and Israel going to war. And it's not like the Russians couldn't get there. They have control of the Caucasus. They have thousands of peacekeepers there keeping control of the situation. In fact, if something were to happen in the Middle East, um, especially in the event that Iran and Israel and U.S. started moving through Iraq and Syria to get to one another, the Russians would probably put more troops on the Armenian and Azerbaijani border with Syria and Iraq. Well, really it would be more of, what is it, just Iraq and Turkey and maybe Iran? I'm not entirely sure on how that border. I know there's not that many countries that actually border them, but I would imagine they would put they would use it as an excuse to put more troops there, and with reason. What are you gonna say? No. I'm I'm sure the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis can't, and if they do, well, you won't hear from those people anymore. You would. Oh my goodness! It's just so wow. Just so wow. What would happen? If these two countries were to actually get at each other. But uh, we'll use that as a segue, a very bad segue into the next topic, which is the potential of space 
to be the battleground of the great powers. We're gonna we're just gonna walk away from that mess of the Middle East just like America and Russia would in the situation I've laid out. Well the scenario I laid out. And we're gonna go talk about something different. We're gonna talk about space and <laughs> now well, the reason we're talking about space right now is because France uh this week has held well France last week because this is Monday you know what I mean you know what I mean France held a military exercise in space to test its ability to defend French satellites. The U.S. Space Force, along with the German space agencies, also participated in these exercises. So, you have America, France, and Germany all getting in on the good stuff with regards to defending satellites, or at the very least, seeing what they're capable of when it comes to defending satellites. And I'd imagine it's probably defending satellites from something they can imagine right now, which when war actually comes around, you're going to get hit with things you didn't expect. But I believe this is a pretty good starting point, you know, just seeing what you're able to do up there because you're going to be limited, especially with current technology. Now, the French defense minister has stated before, um, I believe it was before this uh, exercise happened about a year ago, if I'm not mistaken, he said that our allies and our adversaries are militarizing space. He then went on to say, we should do something about it. We should be prepared. Something along those lines. And I'd imagine France probably doesn't want to get Germanied from space this time. Whenever that comes around. Uh, and speaking of which, they have decided that they're going to expand their uh, space command. They have committed themselves to expanding their space command to around 500 members by 2025. And this little topic has led me to speculate on what militarized space would look like. Now, some say that it's already militarized via GPS, which itself was designed to help nuclear missiles find their targets. And the most notable person who believes this that I can think of would be George Friedman. But... That aside, we're going to put the technicalities aside for the sake of speculation, of course. But I, that leads me to ask, what would it look like, really? <clears throat> now, of course, we can only imagine so much with the technology we have available to us. People back in 1900 thought we would have uh, battleships that could roll around on land in 2000. But we don't have those. We have tanks, but those those aren't battleships. So, we we can still have fun speculating. What would it look like? Uh, now, I myself, I don't imagine space cruisers and destroyers just yet. Just yet. But maybe shuttles that have drone swarms in their cargo bay, rather than uh, front food <laughs> and water. We could see stockpiled rockets uh, kept in underground missile silos that can be launched in the event of war 
and they're meant to block enemy satellites from giving or receiving communications. Or maybe you just use the, that same missile to destroy the enemy satellite instead. Whichever is cheaper, I'd imagine. Maybe you use that satellite, I mean that stockpiled rocket that carries a satellite, and you deploy it in space before the war, and you can then maneuver that satellite who, with all of its fuel still intact, because you would put it in orbit so it doesn't need fuel to move, well, to move around the Earth, and you could use the fuel there to position it to where it can block key enemy satellites, and that itself might be cheaper and more covert. Because you can launch a missile and somebody else can see it, and with the advent of, well, the ad advancement of anti-ballistic missile systems, uh, which right now are only about 50-50 on a good day, with the increasing role of AI and laser-guided uh, systems towards hitting targets with greater and greater accuracy, we could see anti-ballistic missiles, or at the very least anti-missile technology, improve to the point where you could actually potentially be at a disadvantage if you're launching something into space after the war has already started. You, your stuff could get shot down, and you would have to hope that you have more, <laughs> more rockets to that than your enemy does, but it doesn't take a... It might not take a really big rocket to take down another rocket in the future, especially with hypersonic missiles, which are generally, what, smaller than others, and you can have short range where you have like a submarine sitting off the coast of your enemy and it, it fires the missile instead and well you didn't know where the submarine was they didn't know where your rocket side was but i guess we both know now and your rocket is gone so maybe we could put satellites up in space before say a war and that would be the smart move like later on down in the future because for right now you can still you still have the option to shoot down an enemy satellite and there's not too much other people can do about it unless they're they have means to shoot your rocket down available at that moment when you're firing it close enough to where it can actually hit but in the future that might not be an option with better and better anti-missile technology you might want to have to pre-position yourself so that you don't have to worry about that. And if they wanted to, you know, get rid of that blocking satellite, say, they would have to either destroy it and risk destroying their own satellite in the process because your satellite would be blocking theirs. Or you, what, they would have to go retrieve your satellite, in which case you can just move around every time they tried to do that with the fuel stores on it. But I guess that would temporarily alleviate the problem so that they could actually communicate with their satellite the second your satellite moves out of the way. Very complicated maneuvering things, but uh, war is complicated. Just a number of those things with regards to satellites that could happen. And the way I view these vessels of the early spacefaring era, because... We're talking a lot about satellites but we and space shuttles. The way I view them 
because I said we're probably not going to see space cruisers and destroyers just yet. But these are kind of like, kind of like, uh, what is it, what is it? Triremes. You know, those uh, triremes, quinteremes, and other ore-powered vessels of the early seafaring age, if you're old enough to remember what those are, where people would sit down in a boat, you'd have like a row of men on both sides of the boat, and they'd all, they'd all carry... Well, you'd have like a bench and like a line of benches on both sides of the boat underneath the deck. And then you'd have like a bunch of men sitting on the bench on each bench and together they would row the boat with the really long oars. That's how the Vikings did it. That's how the Ottomans did it. <laughs> That's how we're doing it in space. Well, not with oars, but like the propulsion capability is similar, uh, I'd imagine, compared to what we might get in the future. So that's kind of where we are. We're at, we're at the er, we're at the trireme phase of early space travel, and therefore the trireme phase of early space warfare. We're limited in the range and the firepower of what we're capable of bringing up there, but still capable of causing trouble if used correctly. Now, only time, and truthfully, probably war, will tell what correctly actually means for space weaponry. But what I I would say that countries can't invest too much into space unless they have relatively secure borders. Uh, and I would like to use this opportunity to think back to a concept that I coined way back in, I think, one of the f like first 10 episodes I did on the podcast, uh, this thing that I called the Architects of Cyberpower. And this is referencing Victor Davis Hansen's uh, video series on the Second World Wars, the video series he did with Hillsdale College, where he talked about the interwar period, which is between World War One and World War Two, and even World War Two itself. But specifically when he was talking about the interwar period, he talked about what he called the architects of air power. Now, these were people who believed that air power would trump everything um, and you needed only, only air power. And that was going to win you the day. And he pointed out something that ultimately proved being obvious in, you know, the war itself which is that nobody lives in the air. People live on the ground. You can use air power to make things safer for, you know, operations on the ground, or even safer for operations at sea, as we learned in World War II as well. But you're not gonna, you can't occupy a city or a piece of land with air power. You need boots on the ground. And so I see today similar uh, yet slightly different uh, arguments in favor of, say, cyber power and information warfare, and which I have coined cyber power. Well, I haven't coined it as cyber power, but I have coined the people who talk about it trumping everything else as being the architects of cyber power. I have coined that one. And we see these architects of cyber power talking about how you just hack your enemy, and that's it. You just ruin their banking sector. You just ruin their finances, and that's it. But you can create chaos doing that. 
but you can't necessarily occupy. You can't occupy a piece of land with that. You can use information warfare and get other people to occupy it for you, but even then, they have themselves have to have ground forces in order to do that. So even then, we're relying on ground forces. And if your goal is to defeat the enemy and not to create a bigger problem that spirals back at you in a catastrophic way, then you're probably going to want to occupy territory. And for that, you need ground forces. But you can use cyber for great means to an end for defending the integrity of the other zones of warfare. Your land forces, your navies, your air force, all of which are increasingly more dependent on technology these days. Just like how controlling the skies made ships and land forces safer, controlling cyberspace would make even would make both your planes well it would make your land forces and your naval forces and then your air forces on top of that safer it's kind of like the what is it the ultimate high ground there we go space is the ultimate high ground and cyberspace is tech what the ultimate uh, cyberspace is the ultimate high ground there we go because space itself is impossible without computer technology. You can't, you're not going to get there with sticks and stones. But space would secure the air. The air secures the land and sea. But cyberspace would secure space. And I guess you would need secure space in order for cyberspace. Yeah, they're up there. They're up there together. But... You would need control over cyberspace to make everything else safer, but you would still need other branches. Maybe you can spec specifically into cyber and then an army, or a cyber and then into, say, your navy and an air wing with a small army. Or maybe you're landlocked and you just go cyber and an army cause, and an air force. Maybe you go cyber and almost entirely air force and then you have a small army. You're going to need the army. Otherwise, someone's just going to walk into your territory. Eventually, they'll shoot down all of your other assets. And what then? <clears throat> so that's the problem that I note with, say, cyber warfare exclusivity. Because the obvious thing here would be to point out that people don't live in cyberspace. They don't live in space either. At least not yet. People live on the ground. So if you want to affect those people, you're going to need to probably get to them some way, shape, or form. Because there's going to be contingents of people that see through what you're doing. And eventually, they'll be able to point things out very effectively. Because people learn. Or at the very least, they can train an AI to do that. So even then, they can just hack you back. So what happens if you're... Say your computer systems go down. Well, cyber power can't repair a computer. You need a person for that. So, you need the army. You always need the army, at least for now. Maybe you can build a robot for that in the future, but you need the army. And you'll probably need security in the ultimate high grounds of space and cyberspace. And I'll end that. And we'll get into our closing segment in just a moment. 
Alright, we're gonna get into our closing segment right around now. And I, before we go, I did want to talk about this, uh, something I've noticed. Uh, not for this week specifically, but uh, over the course of the last couple weeks, uh, and even the last couple months, what I've been noticing is this rise in militancy around the world. I've probably talked about it, but I want to give it a little bit more attention, because now I've had the chance to observe where it leads, at least in the short term anyway. And what I've noticed is it either leads to harsh reprisals by governments that are strong enough to resist, and then they hold the center, and you get stability back, or these this rise in militancy leads to instability. And we have seen more of the second option lately, especially in Africa, which is kind of one of why I wanted to look more into the continent and specific nations in the continent. We talked about Mali a while back, or was that last episode? <laughs> and their fight that they were having with militants, and now we see, what, almost 40 people dead in Nigeria after a clash with militants? You have Eritreans fighting. You have conflict brewing in Sudan. You have a literal conflict being waged in Ethiopia and the Tigray Rebellion. You have Yemen. You have the Houthis. You have all these militant groups in the Middle East that I cannot even name them all. I can name some of them, like Hezbollah. <laughs> I can name ISIS, but um, we see all this militancy around the world, and it's only increased, especially over the past decade, and my question that I have in the back of my mind is, how will this rise in militancy play out um, with regards to the major countries, or at least, well, just national entities on their own, not even just like major countries, but countries and their governments will we see a large-scale re-adoption of mercenaries like in eras past similar to what turkey has done recently will we see governments settle for backing insurrections that pop up in or maybe near the territory of rival nations like the soviet union did and it's when it was around and the United States still does. Will we see them do that? Or will countries opt for the Saudi Arabian slash Russian model, which is to spawn those rebellions yourself in enemy territory, preferably in a region that's close to you so you can back them up militarily and economically while claiming that you're uninvolved. But weakening your enemy at the same time and wearing them down to the point where they can't put up a fight against you if you moved in directly. Who knows? It's just something I've uh, noticed a lot when gathering information for these episodes as I comb through a week's worth of news on the international scene. But um, yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. 
So far, Turkey is the leader in mercenaries, but Russia's the, Russia and Arabia are the kings of spawning insurrections. Russia uses it in a more controlled manner, I would argue, than Arabia. Arabia goes for the... <laughs> Arabia goes for the no fucks given model where they just plop down, say, I don't know, an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda and let them run wild. So we'll have to we'll have to see what governments do because this rise in militancy doesn't seem to be going down. It seems to be rising. Well, yeah, it seems to be rising. But even in light of countries trying to fight it. So what happens when countries don't fight it and maybe embrace it in some way, shape, or form? You know, openly, not like on the down low where you back someone and then say you're not backing them. Or we go back to the time when countries would just say, you know what, we're going to hire this group of mercenaries. And then everyone would know that they hired this group of mercenaries. And you're like, oh, snap, we're going to (laughs) lose. Oh, snap, that's trouble. Maybe, maybe we should sue for peace. That peace sounds like a good option. Will we go back to that, or will we see everybody and their mom joining in whenever there's a proxy war to be had? Who knows? But uh, things are definitely heating up in the places we least expect and in the places we all expect. But that is all I have for you today. Now, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. It's a bit of a longer episode, uh, but I'm, I'm delivering this one late, so I guess it's compensation. But the world, like my recent schedule, is changing. I'm still on Mondays. Don't worry. Don't worry. The world is changing, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Hope you're not in the Middle East. If any of what I've said goes down, I pray to God that you're safe. And together, we're going to watch the world change. Now, I have been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.